Let's pray and ask God to help us understand his word. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the true teaching of the Apostle Paul and of the other apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for graciously having it recorded for us in the scriptures of the New Testament. And we thank you, Heavenly Father, that you have preserved those scriptures intact so that we have them today, so that we can know the original truth about the Lord Jesus Christ. Please help us tonight as we read this letter to understand what it means in its context, to understand what implications it has for us here today as we read it as your word. Please, we pray that you will help us to do these things tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. A few years ago, I heard a man preach, preaching. And his topic was the doctrine of penal substitution. Penal substitution is the idea that when Jesus died on the cross, he was dying as a substitute. He was dying in our place. It was a substitution. Jesus substituting for us. And it's the idea that this substitution was penal. That is, he was being our substitute, bearing the penalty, the penalty, the punishment for our sin. The man that I heard said that Jesus did not die in our place to take the punishment for our sins. And he gave all sorts of reasons why. He said, God is love. A loving God would never be angry about sin. He said, a God of love would never punish Jesus. He said, a child abuser would punish his own son. He said, it's, it's unjust that if we deserve to die, that Jesus would die in our place. On and on he went with all of these reasons why penal substitution is wrong. Now, um, I strongly disagreed with what this bloke was saying. But the thing is, I didn't know what to do. Uh, I sat there and listened. I thought, this is all wrong. But I didn't want to cause any trouble. This bloke was, uh, was much older than me, and he was a very, very nice man. Very popular, very well liked. He recently passed away, and you should have heard the eulogies. You'd have thought this guy was Presbyterian saint of the century. People absolutely loved him. I didn't want to cause any trouble, and so you know what I did? I did nothing. I said nothing. I did nothing. I just put up with it. What do you think? What do you think? Did I do the right thing? What, what, what should I have done in that situation? As far as our culture is concerned, of course I did the right thing. Of course I should put up with it, shouldn't I? For our culture, tolerance is a prime virtue. For me, to criticise the man or to take him to task in some way, most people would say that is arrogant. They would say it is rude. Most people would say he's entitled to his opinion. He's entitled to his interpretation. And so I ought to have the courtesy and the humility to shut my mouth and put up with what he says. But is our culture right? Should I have put up with it? What should I have done? Way back in AD 50, when the Apostle Paul came to the city of Corinth, he preached the good news about Jesus, the gospel, the good news 
the same good news that was preached by the other apostles of Jesus. Paul preached the good news that Jesus did die on the cross in our place to bear the punishment for our sin. He preached that the way to be a Christian is to rely on what Jesus has done, to, to rely on him to save us from sin, to, to submit to him as king. And as far as Paul was concerned, that is it. There is nothing else to being a Christian. You just rely on Jesus. And so... Paul happily welcomed both Jewish people and Gentile people, non-Jewish people, into the church that he planted in the city of Corinth. He welcomed them on equal terms. The only requirement was that they had to rely on Jesus. But a couple of years down the track, some new teachers came to Corinth and they were contradicting what Paul said. They were saying that the things God demanded in the Old Testament still stand, still apply. They were saying, therefore, it's not enough for non-Jewish people, Gentile people, to rely on Jesus. What they also have to do is follow the Jewish law if they want to be proper Christians. And the thing about the false teachers was this. They were impressive. They'd come probably from Jerusalem, from the home base of Christianity. They had with them letters of recommendation from churches where they'd been, and they presented really well. Latest Armani toga, latest, uh, latest um, ability to speak, all, 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 the, all the rules. They knew all the, all the modern ways of presenting. They were impressive. So now in chapters 10 to 11 of his letter, Paul talks about these new teachers these teachers who were contradicting his message about Jesus. So, so what do you reckon he'll do? How will he react? Well, last week, Warren showed us that, uh, that Paul didn't want to start a sort of a my dad's better than your dad game of comparing himself with these, uh, with these teachers. He, he didn't want to play some boastful game of showing why he's better than they are. He said they use all kinds of false criteria to show who's a true teacher, who's a good teacher, and they kept on comparing themselves with each other on the basis of these false criteria. Paul says that's just not wise. He doesn't want anything to do with that sort of nonsense. You can see it in chapter 10, verse 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12. Just flick your eyes back to that. Paul says, talking about these false teachers, we do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. Paul doesn't want to buy into any foolish comparisons with these other teachers. But there's a problem. The problem is this. The problem is the Corinthians are listening to these new teachers. They've been impressed by all their qualifications. They've been impressed by their clever speech. They've been impressed by the good Jewish heritage. They've been impressed by the fact that they came from Jerusalem. The Corinthians have been convinced by all the, all the self-commendations of these new teachers and they are listening to them. For Paul, that is not okay. For Paul, that is a deadly serious matter because what these, false, what these teachers are saying is false. It's not just that they have a different opinion. It's not just that they have a, a different interpretation. They are wrong. And they're dangerous. 
What they are saying will lead people away from trusting in Jesus. What they are saying will lead the Corinthians to trust in their own good works, in their own obedience to Jewish law, instead of in Jesus. And as far as Paul is concerned, the consequences of that could not be any worse. Paul can't just let this go. And so, against his better judgment, even though he thinks he's foolish, even though he doesn't want to do it, Paul decides that in the next couple of chapters he will compare himself to the new teachers. He will show how he is superior to them. He knows that it's foolish. He doesn't want to do it, but he feels that he has to. So verse 1 of chapter 11, Paul says, Well, Corinthians, um, you're going to need to put up with a bit of my foolishness. And then with a little bit of irony, he says, well, I guess you, think, you may think you're already doing that anyway. You've read this far, haven't you? Chapter 11 and verse 1. Chapter 11, verse 1. I hope you will put up with a little of my foolishness, but you're already doing that. And then Paul gives the reason. The reason why they should put up with his foolishness. The reason why they should listen as he compares himself to the false teachers. He talks about how he feels responsible for them. Now, he uses... He uses an illustration from first century marriage practice. Now, back in those days, parents were much wiser than they are today. They didn't let their children um, choose who they were going to marry on the basis of their hormones or whatever. What would happen is parents would carefully arrange their marriages for their children. Uh, what would happen, uh, the, the dad would arrange a husband for his daughter. And there would be what was called a betrothal. An agreement between the families, like a contract between the families, that the daughter would marry this particular man. And the thing is, this betrothal was binding. It was a binding contract between the families. For the girl to go off with someone else, that's, that was tantamount to adultery. And so it was the father's responsibility to make sure that his daughter fulfilled the betrothal. She had to be protected, kept a virgin for her husband. Paul picks up the image. He says, he says he's like a dad. Now, the Corinthian church is like his daughter. He's betrothed her to Jesus as her husband. And now it's his responsibility to make sure that they don't go off after any other husbands. It's his responsibility to make sure that they trust only in Jesus, that they stay faithful to Jesus. Have a look at verse 2. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you I betrothed you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. Did you get the illustration? Paul is responsible to help the church that he founded to stick with Jesus, to trust in Jesus alone. They mustn't trust in Jewish law. They mustn't trust in anything else. They belong to Jesus alone. But the Corinthians are in real danger. They're in danger because they're putting up with these new teachers. Now, Paul says these teachers are not teaching the truth about Jesus. He says they're preaching a different Jesus. A Jesus who is not a complete saviour. A Jesus who needs, who needs to be supplemented by other things. Who, who doesn't, hasn't done everything it takes to save us. He, uh, Paul says that their teaching brings a different spirit. Not the, the spirit of the promised new covenant, as we saw back in Ezekiel, but they're still stuck in the old covenant. 
And Paul says they're teaching a different gospel, a gospel of works instead of of grace, a gospel that's, that's no good news at all. And the thing is, the Corinthians are buying it. They're listening. They're putting up with it. They're tolerating it. Paul says it's like Eve listening to the serpent in the Garden of Eden. It's a dangerous thing to do because like Eve, the Corinthians could be led astray. Verse 3. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. Can you see why Paul needs to compare himself to the false teachers? Even if it is foolish, Paul needs to do it. He's got to convince these Corinthians to trust him and not them. Because putting up with these false teachers could lead them away from Jesus. And so Paul starts his comparison. He says he's, he's not in any way inferior to these new teachers, these so-called, I guess, self-titled super apostles. <clears throat> you can imagine the, the big S on there, Armani Togas, can't you? Verse 5. But I do not think I am in the least inferior to those super apostles. And then Paul deals with a, a couple of ways in which the super apostles are saying that they're better than him. A couple of ways that they're saying you should trust us and not Paul. The first is that they are trained speakers. Now, back in those days, you had all kinds of rules about public speaking. It came out of Greek culture, rules of rhetoric, as they were called. Now, these new teachers, they knew all the rules. They were eloquent, they were modern in their speech. But Paul didn't go in for all that sort of stuff. He resolved he wasn't going to play games, he wasn't going to use clever tricks. He resolved that he would preach Christ crucified. He resolved that he would set forth the truth plainly. He may not have been trained in all these tricky rhetorical strategies, but Paul knew the truth about Jesus and he made it perfectly clear to the Corinthians, so clear that they became Christians and put their trust in him. Verse 6. I may not be a trained speaker, but I do have knowledge. We've made this perfectly clear to you in every way. Okay, that's the speech issue. The next way that the super apostles were claiming to be better than Paul was in the matter of money. And these super, super apostles were, were charging big money for their teaching. But when Paul came to Corinth, he didn't charge a cent. He, he didn't ask for money at all. In fact, as we saw in our first reading, he worked a day job, making tents with Priscilla and Aquila. Now, later on, Silas and Timothy brought him some money from Macedonia. Uh, then he worked full time in preaching. But still, he didn't ask for money from the Corinthians themselves. He worked for free. False teachers were saying this. They were saying, well, our teaching is more expensive than Paul's because it's better than Paul's. You get what you pay for. It's a, it's a common principle even today, isn't it? We assume the more expensive something is, the better it is. Uh, you pay $300 an hour for a junior solicitor, but to get the partner, you'll pay double. Why? 
Well, because allegedly you're getting better, you're getting better quality. You're getting more experience. You're getting more knowledge. You're getting more skill. The, uh, these teachers, they were charging the Corinthians big dollars for their services and they'd convinced them it was because they were giving them top-of-the-range teaching. And the fact that Paul charged nothing, well, said the super-apostles, that speaks volumes, doesn't it? Now, Paul tackles this head-on. He says, yes, I didn't charge you anything. And he says, when I come again, I'm still not going to charge you anything. I will not allow myself to be a burden to you because I am not in it for the money. I'm not teaching for profit. No, no, says Paul. I'll keep on giving of myself for nothing because I love you. Verse 7. Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel, to you, the gospel of God to you free of charge. I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. I've kept myself from being a burden to you in any way and will continue to do so. As surely as the truth of Christ is in me, nobody in the regions of Achaia will stop this boasting of mine. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. Paul repeats again, When I come, I will not charge you. And in so doing, he says, I will show up the true motives of these so-called super apostles. I'll cut the ground out from under them. I'll show them up as the greedy shysters that they are. Verse 12. And I'll keep on doing what I'm doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. Now, Paul's not inferior to these so-called super apostles. He's not a trained speaker, but he told the Corinthians the truth clearly. He, he didn't charge them, but that's because he shared the gospel out of love for them, not, not, not for profit like these false teachers. And now it's at this point that Paul really lays it out. No more pussyfooting around now. He says it like it is. Here's the real situation with these teachers. Here's why it's so important the Corinthians don't put up with them. Here's why they need to stick with Paul and the original gospel. It's because these teachers, it's not just that they have a different opinion, it's not just that they have a different interpretation, it's not that they're entitled to their own way of viewing things. These teachers are false teachers. These teachers are servants of the devil. Like the devil masquerades as an angel of light, they are masquerading as, as Christian teachers. Verse 13. Just feel the political correctness here. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ, and no wonder... For Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It's not surprising then if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. And Paul finishes by saying they will get what they deserve. They are preaching that people need to do good works to be saved and that is what they will be judged on. They'll be judged according to their works. Uh, but of course, like all people, they will fail the test. With Christ, without Christ, they will be unforgiven unsaved, they'll end up in hell. The end of verse 15. Their end will be what their actions deserve. 
strong stuff, isn't it? Okay, well, did you get what Paul's doing in this section? He's, he's starting to compare himself with the false teachers. He, he doesn't want to do it. He thinks it's a foolish thing to do. But, but he just can't let things rest. Paul, he's desperate that the Corinthians will trust in Jesus alone. He wants them pure for their bridegroom. If they put up with false teachers, with these servants of Satan, then like with Eve and, and Satan himself, they could be deceived. They could end up relying on their good works instead of on Jesus alone. They could end up under the judgment of God. Can you see, for Paul, false teaching matters. You can't afford to tolerate it. You can't afford to put up with it. False teachers are servants of the devil himself. And if you listen to them, if you put up with them, they could lead you astray. They could lead you, they could lead you to hell. All right. Now, today we don't, we don't generally hear um, people say that we have to be Jewish to be a Christian. We're not quite in the same context as, uh, as Paul and, and the early Corinthian church. So, so how does all this apply to us? What, what, what can we learn here in Chatswood today? Well, there are still lots of false teachings around today, aren't there? Um, teachings that deny what Jesus has done. T t teachings that detract from what Jesus has done. Who say Jesus didn't die on the cross to, to bear our sin in our place. Who say that, that Jesus didn't rise bodily from the dead. Who say that, that, that Jesus didn't pour out the Holy Spirit. That he's not coming back. Or, or you get uh, teachings that add to what Jesus has done. And say, yeah, yeah, fine, trust in Jesus. But then you've got to do X, Y and Z. Then you've got to, I don't know be a vegetarian or stand on your head for three days a week or some such thing, that they'll add to what Jesus has done or they'll subtract from what Jesus has done. Still today we live in a world full of false teaching. And so this passage, it sounds a loud warning for us. We cannot stay neutral about false teaching. We can't buy this line of, oh, that's someone's opinion and they're entitled to it. We can't afford to be tolerant there is such a thing as true teaching. It comes from the Apostle Paul. It comes from Jesus' original apostles. It's been recorded for us in the New Testament. And it can enable us to be pure for our bridegroom on the last day. It can enable us to be with Jesus forever. That's the, the extraordinary power of true teaching. But there's also such a thing as false teaching. Teaching that disagrees with the New Testament. Teaching that can lead us away from Jesus. Teaching that can destroy us for eternity. And so we must not put up with false teaching. If what you are hearing is different from what the Bible says, if you are hearing a different Jesus, if you're receiving a different spirit in this teaching, if you're hearing a different gospel, you mustn't tolerate it. You've got to take a stand. You've got to reject it as false. Now, what that's going to mean in different contexts will be different. You want to read The God Delusion or you want to read John Shelby Spong or you want to read something that's anti-Christian, I'm not saying you shouldn't do it, but you've, you've got to be very clear in your own mind that 
if it's not agreeing with what the Bible says, that you reject it, that you take a stand against it in your own mind. For different people in different contexts, this is going to mean different things. But, but what I want to do tonight is just think about what is this going to mean for us here in church? We, like the Corinthians, as God's church, we are betrothed to Jesus. We belong to him. We're supposed to trust only in him. We're supposed to be faithful to him alone. We must not go off after anything else. And putting up with false teaching could lead us astray. Oh, you may be smart and clever. You may be uh, strong enough to be able to resist false teaching. But you don't know that other people here can. And we've got to protect each other here. We've got to look after our brothers and sisters. And so our church needs to be protected from false teaching. The church where I was converted was um, Thornley Baptist Church up in uh, the north of Sydney. And one time when I was there at Thornley Baptist Church, there was a guest speaker. And he was just going on with the most absolute rubbish you have ever heard. He was preaching on the parable of the net, and it was nonsense. He was going on about what all the different uh, knots in the net meant and all this sort of stuff. Absolute rubbish. After a while, my, my pastor, Mike Dennis, he actually stood up and he said to the bloke, Thank you, that's enough, you can sit down now. The bloke said, what do you mean? And Mike said, as the shepherd of these people, I can't allow them to be subjected to this nonsense, sit down now. Pretty confronting, hey? But on the basis of this passage, it was absolutely the right thing to do, wasn't it? Mike had a responsibility to protect us. I myself was a new Christian. Here at Chatswood, I don't want you to have to endure false teaching. I also don't particularly want to have to stand up in the middle of someone's sermon and make them sit down. And so what I do, apart from with Warren, I listen to every sermon that is preached before I let it be preached from this pulpit. Uh, it might sound arrogant, but, but you have entrusted me with the teaching in this church, and that's a responsibility I take very, very seriously. I want to see... You with Jesus at the last day. Can I say, can I say sadly from the history of this church, there hasn't always been true teaching. And I just do funeral after funeral after funeral where I don't know if that person is going to be right with God at the last day. They've heard wrong stuff here and I can't tell if they're relying on Jesus or relying on their good works. I don't want to do any more funerals like that. I want you standing with Jesus at the last day, trusting in him alone, trusting in his grace to you alone. And so I want you to hear only the truth from the Bible. And by the way, uh, if you think that what I am saying is false, or if you think that what uh, you hear from this, this, from this lectern is false, do come and talk to us about it, won't you? Or, or talk to me, talk to Warren. Don't put up with it. Don't just gossip about it. Go and have pasta for supper or something like that. Uh, come with your Bible in your hand and tell us. And if you don't get any satisfaction, if we say, oh, yeah, that might be the Bible, what's, uh, what the Bible says, but who cares? If you don't get any satisfaction... Complain to the presbytery. Now, the presbytery is the part of the church that is responsible to make sure that we teach the truth here. Now, what I've done here then is, at great risk to myself, on your outline, 
I have given you the telephone number and the email address of the clerk of Presbytery. This is the person that you contact if you are hearing false teaching in this church. If we are teaching falsely and we won't change, this is where you go. You know, part of my hope for, for, for this church is this. I hope, I hope that by the time I leave this church, that you will be an utterly intolerant church. I hope you will be the sort of church that insists on only ministers who will teach the truth about Jesus from the Bible. I hope you will grill any future ministers before you will let them into this pool. But I hope that you will then have your Bibles open every single week, checking carefully what you hear. And I hope if your minister won't teach you from the Bible the truth, I hope you'll make his life miserable. I want to leave behind an intolerant, unpleasant, ornery church. I want to make it as difficult and, and miserable for the next minister as possible. Uh, doesn't sound too good, does it? But I think you know what I mean. And I hope you will love the next minister if he, in fact, will teach you the truth about Jesus from the Bible. All right, well, let's conclude. I'm convinced now that what I did that time I was telling you about before was wrong. It was wrong. It was wimpish. When that bloke said that Jesus didn't die in our place to bear the penalty for our sins, I was wrong to keep silent. I was wrong to put up with it. It was bad for me and it was unloving to the people around me who, was hear who were hearing that heresy. It was bad for those people, my brothers and sisters, who could have been led astray by what he was saying. Let me tell you, it will not happen again. In future, I will tackle the person, perhaps physically tackle the person, but, but at least tackle them mentally. After church, I will take my Bible in my hand and I will show them, here's what the Bible says, here's what you're saying, why don't they match? I know that that's culturally insensitive. I know that it sounds arrogant. I know that it sounds foolish. But as we've seen today on this issue, the Apostle Paul himself was willing to be foolish. Too much is at stake to keep silent. False teaching is too dangerous. We do not want people to be taken away from Jesus by false teaching. We've got to take a stand. We must not put up with false teaching. Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you have given us true teaching from the Apostle Paul and from the other apostles written down in the scriptures of the New Testament. You have told us what we need to know to be able to put our trust in Jesus and be saved. You've told us what we need to know to be pleasing to you, to be, to be able to be presented pure to the Lord Jesus Christ on the last day. We thank you that you've given us this true teaching and we pray, Heavenly Father, that you might help us as a church to stick with this true teaching. We pray that those who teach here will teach only what your Bible says accurately and faithfully. We pray for so many places in the world where, where people are not hearing Bible teaching. We ask, Father, that you'll work in the hearts of all who profess to teach your word, that they may teach what is true from the Bible. And we pray that you will hold on to your beloved church and keep them pure for the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.